is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, author, editor, podcaster, and poet, Barney Hoskins. We carried you in our arms on Independence Day, and now you'd throw us all aside and put us on our way. Oh, what dear daughter neath the sun would treat a father so, to wait upon him hand and foot, yet always answer no. Tears of rage, tears of grief, why am I always the one who must be the thief? Come to me now, you know we're so alone, and life is brief. Thank you very much, Barney, that's great. Can you describe the first time you heard those words? Well, it would have been the first time I heard the first album by the band. First track on music from Big Pink. I don't think I would have heard any other version. Um, so it was the voice of Richard Manuel, and it, I was hooked straight away. What does it mean to you, that song, aside from the, your memory of hearing it the first time? What did it mean to you the first time you heard it? Did it mean anything, or is it just the sound of the band? Well, I think it was the sound of the band, but I, I, I suspect that even... On first listening, there was something about the words that seemed so grave and solemn and strange, really, for like rock and roll. Mm. So, you know, maybe at just some subconscious level, that lyric kind of seeped in there. And and, and I, I had some feelings about the words. You know, I mean, it was just unusual to hear a, a song sung by a father to, you know, to an errant child. These weren't mm. subjects that were common mm. in pop or rock and roll. Especially when you're a young, presumably you're a young man yeah. listening to this, mm. and you know, young men didn't sing about things like that. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, none of the uh, artists that I listened to when I was like 13, 14, I think I first heard the band when I was 14. But up to that point, Nobody I'd ever listened to ever sang about parenthood mm. <laughs> or anything to do with family. or So in a way, that was a way into, you know, this aspect of Dylan and the band and the fact that they represented something different from Mark Bolan. And it was Father, Yes, Son, I Want to Kill You and all this, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. it mm. was very, in the, you know, the thrust of the 60s was to, you know, overthrow the previous generation to completely reject everything that they stood for so this song it was so telling that, that the band chose to make it the first track on that album and then when you opened up this this gatefold sleeve you saw this picture of them with members of their families in canada um obviously this was this had kind of totally preceded mark boland since i used that example but for me, I'd come in with, like, pop, and as one does, you know, glam rock was sort of my my initiation mm. into being a pop fan. And then I sort of worked my way backwards into the world of groups like the band and, and ultimately Bob Dylan. Were you aware that it was a Bob Dylan song, even, when, you, when, it, when those first notes struck? Yeah, because I was pretty geeky at the age of... 14 or 15 or whenever I first bought this album. And, and you know, you would look and see, you know, mm. you look at the information on the mm. record sleeve and I and I could see Dylan Manuel. I was sort of struck because I didn't even know that Dylan wrote songs with anybody else. And not that he sat down with Richard with a pad and pencil. I mean, but nonetheless, it's a collaboration. Apparently. So he just, he gave him the, uh, the lyrics, didn't he? 
and just yeah, said, can you do anything with this? It's, it's yeah. Exactly. And I imagine that Richard Manuel probably had some kind of soulful, gospelly, Ray Charles-ish thing mm. going, and, and they managed to sync these two mm. elements uh, into something that I still think is sort of spine-chilling. It's sort of funereal as well. I was listening yes. to it again today, and I've been listening to it my whole life, but it sounded like one of those great New Orleans funerals, you know, everyone's just walking <laughs> along the street. Maybe, maybe mm. it's the, the remix or the remaster I was listening to, but the, mm. the tambourine or whatever it was just, just seemed very sort of stately and very kind of Yeah, it is stately. I think that's absolutely mm. right. Such an extraordinary choice for the first track on, yeah. you know, on any album, let alone the first album by a new band effectively yeah. in terms mm. of the public this is a new group the sort of refusal to ingratiate in the normal way with i don't know something just a bit more commercial a bit more up tempo yeah. and and sort of fizzy you know it's it's a bold choice so you you worked your way back to dylan then sort of more or less after that to find out more about uh, do you dylan. know what I, i'm trying to think what the first like dylan records i bought were and i actually i struggle a little bit with that i always remember the first band record i bought which was rock of ages um and i think maybe the first dylan records i bought i mean appropriately enough given the time frame and subject of my of my book small town talk it might well have been bizarrely they might have been nashville skyline and john wesley harding mm -hmm. you know mm. why don't really know i can't really blonde on blonde of the sort of famous mid-60s sort of trilogy. That would that was the first of those I bought, then bringing it all back home and Highway 61. But were the band sort of more important to you than, say, Dylan ever was? I would say emotionally, yes, because at the end of the day, what the band means to me is something deeply emotional, and I am more... I mean, it's a flimsy word, but I'm just more moved mm. um, by by the band, by the voices in the band and the melodies and the way those guys kind of knit together. It talks to me on a more emotional and slightly less cerebral level than Dylan does. Mm -hmm. And so you ended up living in Woodstock. I mean, that's it's a big jump, but I know you, you wrote this wonderful book, Small Town Talk, about the history of Woodstock as an artist's colony, really, and concentrating on the 60s. But uh, tell us about living. I'd love to know what it was like to live. When did you live there? Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, it really it is quite extreme, essentially, to move somewhere because you really like the music <laughs> of the band that lived there, you know. But it really, that that's probably the truth. I first went there to do interviews for a book about the band itself across the Great Divide. So that's what took me up there the first time. That would have been, I mean, I guess, very early 90s. And I did just kind of fall in love with the place. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think it was just like completely magical little sort of, it wasn't like a cute little New England town. It was, you know, in its way, it was a bit funky and shabby and and phony and all kinds of other things. But I loved the setting of it. I I was just overwhelmed by the mountains. And it just it's my kind of place. What I really love is is mountains and rivers and forests. That's my kind of landscape. I don't know why. I'm not kind of a sea sort of a guy. And I just bought into just everything that one had. Uh, the mythology of the place. So what, what Van Morrison calls the mythology. It's our mythology. <laughs> it's our mythology. Because I did interview Van for a small town talk, and that's basically what he said. It's our mythology. In other words, bullshit. Is that what he was saying? To a degree. I mean, I, Van, 
in in just the way that I did, fell in love with the band. You know, he heard the first record, and mm. and and it's why he moved there. Mm. He moved into the house that Richard Manuel shared with Garth Hudson. So he really got on board. But then Van being Van, he started to sort of see the phoniness of the in crowd of all the people who who wanted to sort of be, get in with Dylan and Albert Grossman. And, you know, and I have some respect for that. Uh, he didn't end up being managed by Albert Grossman as a result. You know, he's, he's a strange fella. So we hear. <laughs> so everybody hears. And I love that you can hear Brand New Day off um, Moon Dance and you can hear I Should Be Released. And it's, the, the, yeah. the, the, the links are very strong. What, I think in, so. Was it in your book that I read, you know, his band in Street Choir, where he looks basically like he's gone hippie? Mm. I think it was in your book that he, somebody had given him that caftan which shirt, which he hated. That, he, that. I think he had literally bought it at a head shop down in the town on, on Tinker Street because, you know, caftans and everything else were a dime a dozen. So maybe Janet Planet, his girlfriend, or someone had said, you know, you should wear this for the photos, yeah. you know. And, and then bitterly he so uncomfortable Because he was never a hippie. No. But then, in a way, neither were the band, neither was Dylan. None of these people were hippies. Yeah, they just wanted to get away from it all, didn't well, they? And, and that brings us back to the lyric, you know, yeah. because Tears of Rage is a kind of anti-hippie song. Yeah, I mean, I must, I must say, I always thought it was just about parenthood, and I thought it was about the, the rejection of how a child, and namely a daughter, can can treat you in, a, in that cruel way that children can be. And I started reading up on it today and I was reading things like Real Marcus talking about it on different levels and mm. about a betrayal of a country. And I was thinking, oh, I had not, I had not considered this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I reread not long ago uh, Philip Roth's American Pastoral mm. and I was really struck by how close the sort of themes of that novel are to this lyric. You mm. know, it's, it's like... Tears of Rage, writ large, writ epic. You know, it is it is about a sort of a true blue kind of American, just died in the world like American soldier, whose daughter gets involved with violent radicals. You know, mm. and um, and I couldn't help hearing Tears of Rage in my mind when I was reading it. Another song that, uh, well, your, your book's called Small Town Talk. And it's, I read your book a, a couple of years ago when it came out, and then I reread it recently. But I still hadn't heard Small Town Talk, the actual song. And then Luke kept telling me how great the Bobby Charles album was. And so I finally listened to it, fell in love with it so deeply that I've been playing that album okay. more than anything for the last, in the last year. But I think Bobby Charles is a real interesting character too because he he goes through the book but it strikes me that he actually he wasn't a hippie it seemed to me a good old southern boy who really liked to drink but he also liked to fish and lie in the sun and so he was actually doing all that stuff that in a way dylan kept saying that must be what it's all about but i i yeah. never got the feeling dylan was really really doing that bobby charles and, and others mm. of his ilk were doing that it seems to it's me. a really good point you know uh i mean bobby was it was a Cajun guy from, mm. from Louisiana, Bobby Charles Guidry, to give him his, his full French name. And how he wound up in Woodstock was just a very bizarre sort of He was on the run, events. wasn't he? He was, he was kind of on the run from some trumped-up charge in, in Nashville where he'd been writing songs. But, I mean, you know, he wrote a bunch of really famous songs in the 50s. He wrote See You Later, Alligator, you know, and Walking to New Orleans. I mean, a bunch of great, great New Orleans songs, mm -hmm. great R&B songs. He was like a swamp pop guy, you mm -hmm. know. 
But he really embodied the spirit of Woodstock in the early 70s, you know, more, more probably than Dylan did. Mm. Yeah, because Dylan at the end of the day was not, I mean, it was less of a joiner in, less, much less, obviously much less, hail fellow, well met, you know, whereas whereas Bobby was the life and soul. Everybody adored Bobby Charles. And also we think of, of the Woodstock years in Dylan's career as the, the, the period after the motorcycle accident or around then, after the 66 tour, the time when he thought, hang on, I, I want to, be alive, I want to be a parent, I want to be a husband, I, I want to just get off this train slightly. But you were saying in the book that he um, had been there much before that, hadn't he? He'd, he'd been there yeah. in, what, 63, yeah. I think? Yeah, that was, to me, part of the mission was to really uh, tell the story from the from the beginning. Uh, in fact, go back pre-Dylan and, and just look at how important Woodstock was to Bob in, in 1963. Mm. You know, it was a place of refuge. It was a place of sanctuary for him. It was a place to get away from all the attention that he was getting, you know, in New York and elsewhere. I mean, I always think it's important to remember that he was a small-town boy. He was not a natural New Yorker, I don't think, although he kind of had to reinvent himself as this really kind of hip urban character. But I'm not sure that that was really the the real pop. I don't think it was. So he really liked uh, and wrote some of his amazing songs up in in Woodstock. It was Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary who, who first invited him up there mm. and he would go up there a lot you know and then of course buy a house there and and so on until it all became too much for him isn't there is it on the front of the whitmark demos that shows him at a typewriter yeah. and i think i read in your book that mm. that was actually he used to he had a room above yeah and that room is still there is it some garage or something? I can't it's, remember. No, it's a room above what was for some years the Cafe Espresso, oh, which was the sort of bohemian place in on Tinker Street. It later became the Tinker Street Cafe. It is now, or at least it was when I was last there, the center of uh, for photography in Woodstock. So they exhibit photographs downstairs and then you can still go upstairs to this room, the white room. Yeah, he wrote uh, a lot of... Uh, very, very famous and beloved songs in that room, and would sometimes sleep over there. The the couple who ran the cafe just essentially like adopted him to some degree and just just gave him that space. Because he he went up there with Susie Rotolo, didn't he? I he mean, did first go up with that, Susie that far back. Yeah. That was the thing that really struck me about the book. Yeah. Mm. So you know, you really did what you intended to do. I thought I had no idea. Mm. Yeah, but, uh, it was so important in his life. In fact, it was the bit that most people know is the latter part of his Woodstock years when it was sort of absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important, and really, everything starts with well, not just Dylan, but other folk singers who went up there like Happy Tram, who played at the Cafe Espresso. Billy Thayer started hosting, like booking folk singers from, from New York and, and around the Hudson Valley too. But people would come up, like Tom Paxton would come up and play Friday and or Saturday night at the Cafe Espresso. I don't know that Dylan did that because he was probably too big to do that, but he would kind of sit around and, and jam a little bit after hours there. So it, it, although it didn't have like a big like folk music community, it began to get that reputation. And then when Albert bought his house in Bearsville and then Dylan bought his house after that, you know, it just, it started to become a real magnet. So mm-hmm. by the time Dylan bought Hilo Har in 65, it was like, this is the place that Dylan lives. And then it's the place that Dylan kind of is hiding out in. I mean, Grossman is really kind of, in a way, the the star of 
of your book, or he was the sort of more the star of Woodstock, almost a bigger star than Dylan, because everybody, including Dylan, revolved around him. He is really. He's he's the you know he's the kind of Mister Big, the big cheese, the guy who's kind of pulling strings and representing everybody. Everybody wants to be managed by him, and he completely embraces the bucolic life. You know, to this sort of tough guy from Chicago and and then this this sort of shark among folk managers in Greenwich Village. He sort of he he really takes to this country life, you know. And everybody moved up there did, did seem to to follow suit. Everybody kind of even Todd Rungren started growing his own vegetables in the 70s. <laughs> which doesn't it, it's, it's hard to fathom. But there's something about the place. It was a place so you could just, you know, to use contemporary parlance, chill out and mm-hmm. Um, smell the roses and all of that good stuff. And this had a sort of ripple effect in the rest of popular music, didn't it? When, when George Harrison came to visit Dylan and then he went back to the Beatles in the winter of 69 and, you know, said, this is this is what it's all about. <laughs> you know, this is, this is what we should be doing. Yeah. And there are moments in the Let It Be sessions which are very self-conscious kind of recreations of that. But that whole notion of getting it together in the country and everything, mm. it sort of sprang from that, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, the band... Uh, represented a turning point. I mean, whether it's a major turning point or a minor turning point doesn't really matter. But it uh, that first album signaled to many people that it was time to slow down. That pop culture and rock and roll were sort of were out of control, were running away with themselves, and it, the, the the counterculture was kind of overheating. And we need to kind of slow down and take stock of what all this means. And plus. This generation of extraordinary musicians were getting older. They were they were just growing up a bit. Well, some of them were, and starting families. Some of them were starting to have kids, and and their agendas changed. And you know, obviously, uh, Dylan kind of crashed into that particular wall, you know, because he already had a kid before the motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. Music from Big Pink kind of said. There's a different way to do this. And so many people just wanted to be the band. It was just like, wow, these guys are just, they're so, they've sort of turned their back on Summer of Love and Psychedelia and all of that. And they're like these these simple country guys up in the mountains. And they made this supremely soulful record. And we want to be like that. You know, you think of traffic and mm. you think of Fairport Convention, you think of, you know, Eric Clapton sort of renouncing heavy blues every, and George Harrison. Although it's worth remembering that when George came up to visit Dylan, he was almost completely uncommunicative. I was just sort of rereading that bit and just how thrown George and Patty Boyd, but they could not get a word out of Bob. He was mm. catatonic. And other people have said that at that time. It was very peculiar. I think it changed a bit the next time Harrison went up there. I think he had a better time with the band guys. Mm. And very much for George, it was like, the Beatles should be like these guys, you know. We're sort of hating each other back in London. Uh, and here's a sort of model of of something that's just more to do with kind of just fraternity and collaboration. Mm. I was listening to uh, Dylan this morning, um, I'll Be Your Baby Tonight came on. Mm. And I've heard, a song I've heard a million times. And I was listening to it. It's Again, it's one of the Woodstock sort of era songs. And I thought, this is odd. I He keeps saying, uh, do not fear. Mm. And you don't have to be afraid. Mm. And I, it was the first time I thought, it's because Bob 
has been acting weird again. You know, I th- I, it, it never occurred to me before that he's saying to probably his wife, mm. don't worry, I'm not going to be weird, Bob, today. <laughs> We're going <laughs> to get drunk and make love and everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, it is weird when you think about, you know, you don't have, it's always bugged me a bit. Why is he saying you don't have to be afraid? <sighs> those but two I think songs, he was a frightening guy. Well, yeah, those two songs at the end of, of John Wesley Harding are so anomalous and strange, really. They seem to sort of presage some of the songs on Nashville Skyline. I think that's that's the sort of received wisdom. That's the received, yeah. Yeah, and, but you're right to point out what the lyric's actually saying. Yeah, I still, I mean, I'm, I'm still struck by those two songs because what precedes them on the record is so sort of stark and apocalyptic and, and, and strange and just oh, bracingly devoid of... Well, I don't know, devoid of, of, of anything that one might have associated with Dylan or Pop before then. I mean, I, I, it is one of my favourite Dylan records. And, and is it a Woodstock record? I, I think, yes, it is, even though he chose to record it in Nashville without the band. Mm-hmm. I still think it's a very Woodstock record. I do think it's shot through with references to his relationship with Albert. I, I, I think that it's just hard to read those lyrics and not, and not feel that very strongly. Mm. But you're right, it never occurred to me that, you know, I mean, as, as actors, we can probably identify with this, you're on a long tour, the tour finishes, you're home in the evenings, you can say to your to your significant other, I'll be your baby tonight, I'm around, <laughs> yeah, you know. Because yeah. then you've got the bit in your book where you're describing that in, in his, sort of, I guess, the 69, 70 years, he was up at six, he was reading for four hours, he's in bed by nine o'clock every night. Mm. It's Although it's a much slower pace, it demands a kind of commitment that isn't dissimilar from the commitment of, of, a, of a few years tour. earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just a, a, a safer version, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I do think that Dylan was trying valiantly to be something that he was not mm. naturally at all. And I think there's a quote by Joan Byers to that effect, you know. Mm. In a sense, no one was really fooled. <laughs> not even by the seersucker jackets, you know. Um, because, because Dylan was and always had been weird a weird guy you know a strange man and certainly not a typical kind of hearty dad but he did all the things that dads are supposed to do which again which was unusual for the time you know Mm. and i you know i think you read interviews with jacob dylan people sort of years later it was like he was a good dad Mm. as far as i know most of the dylan kids are sort of unusually unfucked up yeah. for, for, for rock progeny. Yeah. So I think he probably was a good dad. But you're right. Not and that he, that's what this he, podcast is about. No, no, no. But, but it is interesting to figure out. We'll never figure out Dylan. We'll probably never figure out ourselves. But um, he's a, a uniquely difficult person to figure out. I'm, again, going back to just I'll be your baby tonight. I also heard that line, that, the mock, that mockingbird is going to sail away. And I, I always thought that that was, you know, the rock press or some outside force. But I thought, oh, no, I think it could be Dylan because mm. Dylan was a mockingbird. Dylan you know, could destroy mm. people with his oh, mocking. Yeah. So I, I think he made a, it seems to me he did make a huge effort to try to be a good person. You know? Well, so what he's recovering from after the accident is not just the insane acceleration of his fame and whatever drugs he was or wasn't doing. I mean, I think he's recovering from the experience of, of, of being something also that he probably wasn't, which was cruel and withering and 
extraordinarily arrogant. You know, I think he he wouldn't ever have admitted it, but to some degree, I think he was kind of atoning for hmm. for some of his behaviour. The, hmm. the behaviour, you know, he was holding court with Bobby Newhart and others, whether it was in Woodstock or m- more often in New York itself. I think probably. You know, he did have that kind of moment of clarity, which was, which was, you know, if I carry on like this, I'm going to die. Mm. You know, and that's not just the amount of drugs I'm consuming, but my whole, the whole way I'm living my life and treating other people. And he's still not thirty at this point. No, <laughs> you know that's astonishing. No. And didn't you, when you were house hunting in Woodstock, didn't you stumble across a, a certain stretch of road that is of significance to Zillan fans? Well, well, so um, sometime after I'd uh, moved out of Woodstock, so I lived there in the second half of the 90s. You know, having fallen in love with the place, I decided I wanted to live there. Um, and uh, so there's some, like, photos, Traveller USA book that was speculating as to where the accident had been. And I lived on this really quite dangerous bend on Xena Road. And that was one of the places mentioned as a possible site. I mean, I think it's almost certainly not true. I, mm. It just it doesn't really make sense when, when you put the pieces together. I'm sure it was uh, much closer to, to Bears. I'm sure it was on Glasgow Turnpike. Maybe just um, people thought that that bend in Xena Road was the only place dangerous. No one really knows how Dylan managed to but come off. But he said he was a terrible... Terrible, was, terrible driver drive of anything, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because there aren't any real dangerous bends on Glasgow Turnpike. Whereas maybe people thought just because this is a, a notorious bend on Xena Road, that, that must have been where he came off the motorcycle. But no, it was. I'm sure it was on Glasgow Turnpike right. because he hadn't gotten that very. He hadn't got that far away from Grossman's house, mm. and that forced a period of well rethinking in much the same way that Rick Danko's car accident forced them to not be able to support their first album and, and things like that. Yeah, except they, they just kept having accidents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they never really did learn from from their accidents. They're all they bad thought drivers. They were immortal. Um, well, well, they, they were just all drunk yes, drivers. Exactly. I'm afraid. <laughs> no, there was a hell of a lot of enabling in Woodstock. The the police really did turn a blind eye and just like you know. Don't do it again, Rick. Yeah. Well, the naughty, were, naughty man. The police were <laughs> drinking with them, weren't they? Probably, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a small place, and I think yeah. that, I think I did read that the police would uh, be at the same bar as as the band. And, well, they'd all, yeah. the Steenies was where at that point everybody congregated, and and so you know Rick would come in in his sort of neck brace and and have a drink with the chief of police, and that was was all going on you know it was all all part of the um quote unquote magic of the place the last half of your book is particularly sad because uh, there's so much uh, drug abuse mm. in it mm. and it, it gets darker and darker i mean i don't know do you want to do you want to say anything about about that the end of the the woodstock well you know grill marcus said it was the most depressing music book he'd ever read which i i thought was <laughs> <laughs> So we put that on the paperback. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, and I, you know, I was slightly surprised that I think there are many more depressing stories in rock and roll. You know, there's still, to me, quite a lot of joy, the hijinks and all of that stuff. I mean, there's still a lot of great music being made. I mean, I think the sadness more to me is just how it just declined as a, an incubator of great music. But then all scenes you know, rise yeah. and decline and fall, and they mm. just do. And by the time I got there in the mid-90s, or in the first time I went there, early 90s, you know, it was clear to me that it was kind of 
was it resting on its laurels? I mean, the, the laurels were in sort of tatters, really. I mean, it wasn't resting on anything. It was, it was a ghost of its former self. And yes, there were still musicians who lived around there, but, but it felt like a place where tourists went to buy souvenirs, you know, and um, that changed a little bit. It changed with bands like Mercury Rev. And there are a lot of musicians who, like, who live up in that part of the world now. So I think it's enjoyed something of a renaissance in the last five years or so. I wonder how many people who get off the bus from, from New York City and go to Woodstock mm. realise that they're 60 miles away from the site of the, the concert that carries I, I think most name. of them really don't. Yeah. They just don't. And why should they, really? And and in a sense, in the town, they keep it quiet. Yeah. <laughs> but for a very good reason. I was saying to Kerry about yeah. an hour ago, it's like the Cambridge Folk Festival being called the London Folk Festival. That's how yeah. far away it is. Yeah. It's ridiculous. No, it is ridiculous. But, of course, significant that they didn't change the name of it because what one has to remember is that the very name Woodstock meant more. It signified more than just the place. By the time that Michael Lang was trying to get that festival off, mm. the, off the ground, Woodstock had become a sort of state of mind. Yeah. Um, and therefore, they didn't think, oh, well, we'll, we'll call it the, the White Lake. The Yazgur Farm. The Yazgur <laughs> No, it was, yeah. Woodstock was now yeah. a portable concept. Yeah. You, that reminds me of Joni, of course. And you've written, uh, well, you've written so many books. I love the Joni Mitchell anthology. Uh, I, I, I came across, I, I have your Prince book from when it first came out, uh, Imp of the Perverse, which I think is a wonderful title. <laughs> I, I Prince to, didn't think it was so great. <laughs> didn't he? Well, no. I, the only time I interviewed him, he was like, well, Imp of the Perverse, tell me about that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, oh, okay. Uh, it's, an, it's the title of an Edgar Allan Poe story, and it just meant, I just tied myself up in knots and he just sat there like a like a sadistic cat just waiting to maul me. You know, I couldn't, there's nothing I could do. And he was heavily into the Jehovah's Witness thing. So the idea of perversion was like, you know. I, I, re- I was going to ask you about that anyway. Is there anything more, because I'm a huge Prince fan, but I can't imagine getting on Prince's bad side. And so was that like right at the beginning? It was like, what is this title? Um, that wasn't the first question. The first question was he had, he had read this long piece I wrote for Mojo. I'd interviewed a bunch of people about working with him. People like Susan Rogers, who was his engineer. And he'd read it. He'd done a fine tooth comb job on it. And he was just like, why do you think these, these people don't know anything about me? I'm like, well, she did like sit by your side for about eight years, engineering every record you made. But apparently... As far as Prince was concerned, Susan Rogers knew nothing about him and wasn't entitled to speak about it. And none of these people knew anything about him. There's a bit of Dylan in Prince, I always think. You know, just the sort of mystery of the guy. I don't know anything about his Jehovah's Witness uh, phase, except that he maybe mm. he either did or didn't go from door to door with the With Larry magazine. Graham, I believe he did do a bit of that. I don't know how, for how long, but I mean, that's what I've heard is Larry Graham, formerly of Sly and Family Stone, who was a, a very committed Jehovah's Witness. Prince did a bit of doorstepping with him. But I always figured he, he would have been like, la, 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 you, you want to be saved. <laughs> he wasn't like that. I doubt he would have been like that. God knows what he would have done. I mean... I was looking at the pictures in this new Prince book. They're extraordinary, actually. I mean, and some of the, you know, the things he wrote in notebooks. I mean, I'm kind of seeing him in a slightly different way. Of course, Dylan and Prince were both from Minnesota. You know, mm. there's there's a connection there. I'm mm. sure of it. That's a weird place. Mm. What about other subjects of your books? Have you had any feedback from people like Robbie Robertson, things like that? Um, I'm certainly not Robbie's favourite guy. Right. Um, so you've had feedback or...? 
Yeah, I know, people. not directly, but I mean, I did, I did some phone interview with Robertson, maybe like I don't know, when when that big band box set thing came out, a musical history, and I don't know what year that was. Uh, I I'm going to guess at 2005, something. Sounds like that about then. right, yeah, and yeah. and I did a and I called him up in LA, and I, I'll never forget. It was like, he goes. Oh, Barney, 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 Barney. There's <laughs> <laughs> some history yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And okay. he did what he, you know, what he's done, he said a couple of times, it's like, you know, it's such a shame that we never got to do proper interviews for your book. And I'm like, well, you know, I tried. Mm. Oh, I tried very, very hard, Robbie. You can't really say all these years later, no. you know, why didn't you interview me properly for the for the books, you know? Anyway, it's, Across the Great Divide, your book about the band mm. came out at roughly the same time as this Wheels on Fire, Lee Van Helm's book, I, didn't it? I, you know, it's 90s. a really good point. Did it come out after or before? Uh, but anyway, for, 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 for Robbie Robertson... Not that far apart, no. For, as far as he's concerned, there were these two accounts, mm. <laughs> one by Lee Van Helm and one by you, and then mm. he had to wait a few years to, to set the record. Well, we've been talking ahead. on the way here about, as we often do about the uh, Lee Van Helm, Robbie Robertson dichotomy, and it was my theory today, anyway, that Robbie Robertson... He's a very gifted storyteller, and so he, a better storyteller than Levon Helm, who'd probably just sort of be quite phlegmatic about the story. He wouldn't be making it into a grand opera, which Robbie Robertson sort of has made it into a grand opera, maybe about featuring himself. And um, but he's a really good storyteller. Yeah. You can't. He's a better storyteller, and that's why his version is the one that well, every time, know better. every time you hear the kind of uh, really juicy part about that relationship, someone's always ready to contradict it. I remember someone saying about Lee Van Helm's book, you know, it, it starts off as Robbie, then he becomes Robertson. And then he said, well, you know, I co-wrote it with this guy, Stephen Davis. You know, the, the publishers wanted me to spice it up a bit. And in your book, it, you talk about the Lee Van Helm on his, on his deathbed in, what, April 2012. And Robbie Robertson goes to see him. And, and did they have some kind of... Um, Rapprochement. Yeah, after all these years, and 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 Lee Van Helm said no way. But then you've spoken to some other people who said, well, there was a, a deeply spiritual thing going on there. You know, I don't, I don't know. It was that, anything but... deeply spiritual. I think it was a uh, it was a bit of PR for Robertson. I'm afraid. You know, I mean, look, I really try very hard not to see it in any kind of binary way. It's mm. not like Lee Van was great and Robbie Robbie wasn't because. I really don't think that's true at all. Mm. Um, I think, um, what do I really believe? I think they ultimately turned out to be very different. And Robbie ultimately was more pragmatic and more professional and more ambitious. Mm. What I always say is this, is that the magic was in the five of those guys coming together, yeah. you know. And when you took any of them away from that, they were diminished, you know. I mean, I I don't think that any, much, if any of the music that any of them made after, shall we say, you know, The Last Waltz, mm. or in terms of studio album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, which I think is a pretty decent yeah. album, yeah. you know, holds a candle to what they did together, you know. Most of Robbie's music has sounded really... Uh, hollow and and uh, mannered mm-hmm. and inauthentic to me, and you know Levon really was only. I mean, ultimately he was perfectly happy just bashing out versions of Louis Jordan's Caledonia. You know, yeah. if he got a bit of money before he went home, that that was. I mean, without Robbie, we wouldn't be talking about Levon. Mm-hmm. 
But with that, even we wouldn't really talk. Well, we might be talking about Robbie because Robbie would have found some kind of niche for himself. But the songs, however they came about, and whoever really should have got credit, and it just is something about those guys together mm. that just was extraordinary. Like one of Miles Davis's great bands, yeah, or you know whoever you you, you choose to compare it. To. You're right because I, we were talking, Carrie and I were talking about the, the the band in the '90s, you know, and how how much they were lacking, even though they were remarkable in their own way. But I said the, the era that's forgotten is that tour they did in about 83 mm. when only Robbie Robertson wasn't there. Richard mm. Manuel was still alive mm. and he just looks terrible. Mm. And that's when you really start to see the sadness that you talk about, the sadness that's in John Niven's book. Absolutely. That, as you say, John it came out at the end. So I was, oh, that book, my God. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, <clears throat> music from Big Pink, it's called. Yes, just yeah. It. It's I remember just reading wonderful. that and just, and I kind of thought, who is this John Niven fella? You know, he's like, he was in this little indie band in Glasgow. I was like, well, how the hell did he write this book? Yeah. Did he time travel into the mm. psyche of that place? And I and I got an email from him. I wrote to him. I said, "What? What did you? How did you do this?" Yes. You know, I think Grill Marcus did the same. Mm. I mean, a lot of, it was just like, yeah, it really gets. I think the essence of that place. Even though, I mean, I wasn't there in 1969 either, but. The sense I have is that Niven's novel is really close to the feel and vibe of Woodstock. Mm. Yeah, and and Dylan and Grossman sort of play cameo parts in that, which I think yep. is is quite interesting. Just to see them sort of float through in their enigmatic mm. way. Mm. I remember reading in your book that you uh, talked to people who said that they would not speak. Yeah, that was how they controlled the room. Everybody, yeah, just I think they would watch really, them not speak. It's just deeply unpleasant, and there's no way around that. You know, whether you are the biggest Dylan fan on earth or not, it's pretty hard to sidestep that. You know, they were cruel to people who who were really close to them. I mean, sadistically cruel to to people like Joan Byers. Mm. Was there any need for that? Of course, there wasn't any need for that. But they really took it to an extreme. And I think Dylan, I don't know what, I don't know how Dylan looks back on that, you know. I mean, he appears in that Joan Byers documentary and he seems to express some remorse. Yes, yes he, he definitely does. does. Yeah. That's what it's remarkable to hear him say that because it's so straight and so honest. Yeah. Is there anything, because you've seen Something Is Happening, the 1966 edit, which we'll probably never see, but is there anything in there that you remember that we that still hasn't seen the light of day? Well, what I remember of Something Is Happening is is only what uh, Don Panabaker showed me, and he had this reel that he would show to, you know, I mean, anyone who really expressed an interest in seeing it. it was only 45 minutes. It was just live. It was just live footage from mm. the UK. And it was absolutely mind-blowing, you know. I mean, you'll have seen some of it. Some yeah. of it appeared in No Direction Home and and here and there, and, and you know, there are bits of it everywhere. I, don't, I mean, maybe you can see it on YouTube. I don't, probably. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't think so. Okay. I, I mean, it is, it is extraordinary, and it's obviously very different from the basement tapes and music from Big Pink and, mm. and kind of everything that followed the accident. Are you uh, still on the Dylan bus? Am I still on the Dylan bus? Yeah. Do you do you go out of your way to buy, not necessarily every album, but the, the ones that sound interesting to you? Or I mean, I think I've always had one foot on the bus and one foot off it. You know, he's not one of my major heroes, but uh, I realize I really love a lot of his music. And of course, I'm fascinated by him. But there is something about him that alienates me slightly. And I think I've always felt that. I find it difficult to listen to even like Blonde on Blonde without 
without feeling slightly alienated by by the I don't know, I can't really put my finger on it. This sort of withering nature of his, the way he just puts people down and, and how sneering and dismissive he is. I think some of Dylan's most celebrated music lacks a bit of heart, you know, because I'm at the end of the day, I'm pretty soppy. I like people who are kind to, to each other. And so that bothers me. It doesn't mean I don't find it interesting or, or exciting. But as I get older, I... I guess I just I just gravitate to music that heals me and and doesn't that's that's my bag. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Sodom and Gomorrah suite at Lip Sync Studios, engineered by Mark Langley Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Well, it's this old sign on the cross. Every day, every night, we see the sign on the cross just laying up on top of the hill. Yes, we thought it might have disappeared long ago, but I'm here to tell you, friends, that I'm afraid it's lying there still. Yes, just a little time is all you need, you might say. But I don't know about that anymore, because later on, you might find the door you might want to enter. But, of course, the door might be closed. And I just would like to tell you one time, if I don't see you again, that the thing is, that the sign on the cross is the thing you might need the most.